Uh, We're in week seven of our series out of Matthew's Gospel account. Before we get there, though, quick announcement that I am very happy to make. Last year, I had the privilege, um, and if this ever stops meaning something to me, I'll just go ahead and put in my two weeks. But uh, late last year, I had the privilege of praying with actually a couple people who gave their lives to Jesus right there on the spot. Greatest thing in the world right there. And, uh, and, and specifically in the fall, myself and some other um, leaders at our church had some people come forward and express a desire to kind of go public with their, their um, commitment to Jesus through the act of baptism. And so I say this to say, I am thrilled to announce that we will be baptizing people on Easter Sunday right here at our 9 and 11 a.m. services. All we need is people to baptize, which is where you all come in. So uh, if you have given your life to Jesus and you want to do what he has commanded his followers to do, which is publicly proclaim what he's done for you and your allegiance to him through the act of baptism, I'll just tell you what I told the 9 a.m., I would love to dunk you. So uh, for the next several weeks, it'll be open, but um, starting today, if you're interested, uh, you can go to severn.cc forward slash baptism, or you can walk through them double doors, one of them high top tables, the new here table, and uh, get whatever questions you need to ask out of the way and, and information and all that kind of stuff. But other than that, let me welcome you to week seven of our series from Matthew's gospel account called The One We've Waited For um, in Matthew chapter 11, verses one to six. It says, when Jesus had finished giving orders to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent a message by his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, those with skin diseases are healed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And if anyone is not offended because of me, he is blessed. This is God's word. So right at the front end of this passage, it says, after Jesus had finished giving orders to the disciples, he moved on and he started to preach and teach. And theologians have noticed, people that have studied the gospel of Matthew and really looked for kind of a... um, you know, a rhyme and reason to, to the way that Matthew told the story, they've noticed that um, this right here at the beginning of 11 is a, is a transition in the gospel account because prior to this, you have Jesus sort of establishing his ministry. He's assembling and instructing his team. Um, obviously, he's performing a lot of miracles, but from here on out, what we're beginning to see is responses uh, by either groups of people or individuals to the claims that Jesus made about himself. And right here in Matthew chapter 11, at the very beginning and at the very end of this chapter, there's these two uh, great exchanges that lead to these monologues by Jesus that um, just really help us understand exactly who he is and what we have access to by grace through faith in his name. So we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at those two exchanges. This morning, obviously, we're going to be looking at... Um, this exchange between Jesus and John the Baptist. And I, I kind of want to l- look at it in two different um, movements. We're going to look on the one hand at John's condition and the question that he had for Jesus. And then secondly, I want to look at the answer that Jesus gave uh, in response to John's question. Because John's question tells us a great deal about ourselves. 
Whereas Jesus' answer to that question, of course, tells us a great deal about him. So that's really going to serve as the outline for our time together this morning. So first off, I want to look at John's condition. It's found for us in verses 2 and 3. It says, when John heard in prison that the Messiah, what the Messiah was doing, he sent a message by his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? <clears throat> so John here, obviously, he was in prison. He got himself in trouble with the powers that be. And um, one commentary I read this week suggested that John may have, at this point, he may have been in prison for as long as a year already. And so he's experienced some suffering. His life really hasn't gone the way that he expected it to. Um, he's, he's been on the other end of injustice, and it's really not looking good for him. And so when you understand the, uh, the situation that John was in here, you realize this question that he had for Jesus was not uh, purely an intellectual or theoretical kind of thing. What's happened in John the Baptist's life is he is experiencing what you could call a crisis of doubt. And it's not surprising that somebody who's going through everything that John's going through here would be dealing with doubt. But follow me here. What is surprising is that John is the one dealing with doubt. And the reason I say that is because at the very beginning of John's gospel account, maybe you're familiar with this scene where John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said those words before Jesus had even begun to get his ministry off the ground or, or performed any miracles. John the Baptist knew when he looked at Jesus that he was not just looking at another prophet in a long line of prophets who'd come down here to tell us what we needed to do. John the Baptist knew when he laid on, eyes on Jesus that he was looking at the solution to sin itself. And obviously the only thing that could have revealed that to John was divine revelation. He knew that basically before anybody else did. And if you follow just a few verses ahead of this in, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus himself, and would you just pause for a moment and consider what it would be like to have Jesus say this about you. Jesus, just verses after this, says regarding John the Baptist, he says, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. And at that moment, you know, some pretty amazing men and women of God had appeared in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying there, none of them are greater than John. So by Jesus' own admission, John's one of the greatest people to have ever lived. He, he had been the recipient of divine revelation where he understood who Jesus was basically before pretty much anybody else did. And he'd been given this divine mandate by God to lay the red carpet out for Jesus and help others understand who he is and really prepare the way for him. And John is the one here who is seen questioning everything that he thought he knew. Now, before I move forward here, I just want to make a, a, a brief but real important kind of side note. It's passages like this that give me such confidence that the gospel accounts are legitimately historic, historical, uh, reliable accounts of events that literally took place. The reason I say that is, think of it this way. If you were Matthew and you were making all this up, and you're, you're lying about Jesus, but you're trying to get other people to buy into it, let me just ask the question, why on earth would you include a story like the one we're looking at today? How would it motivate anybody to be a Christian? What you have here is Jesus allowing one of his greatest servants to suffer greatly, uh, and then you have John the Baptist is basically questioning whether or not Jesus is who he himself told other people Jesus was. If, if you're Matthew and you're making this whole thing up trying to mislead people, you'd never tell a story like this. You'd actually tell the exact opposite of a story like this. You'd say John the Baptist was unwavering in his faith even while he suffered greatly for it. 
And on the other hand, you'd say, and as soon as Jesus found out, he broke him out of prison. Instead, the exact opposite takes place here. What we have in this passage is the forerunner of Jesus wondering whether or not he's wrong about Jesus, and then Jesus on his end never, never rescues John. John winds up, if you know the story, spoiler alert, I guess, John winds up dying before he, he never lived to see the outside of those four walls. The question is, why on earth would Matthew record a story like this in his gospel account? The only answer that makes any sense is because it actually happened. So the question is, what are we supposed to learn from this particular story? And I think the most obvious answer to that question that this story teaches us is, is first and foremost, absolutely anybody can wrestle with doubt. Anybody, no matter how, how strong their faith appears, how powerfully they've been used by God, no matter what kind of mountaintop experiences they've had in their past, anybody can experience you know, some twists in the plot line of life that has them questioning things that once they felt very certain of. But what is so encouraging to me about this particular passage is seeing the way that Jesus handled it. What, what you will not see Jesus doing here, on the one hand, is he doesn't punish John. It's not like when, when Jesus receives this question, he says, how dare John question me? He's supposed to be the forerunner, and he's been given this divine revelation. He doesn't do that. On the other hand, he doesn't offer John some kind of pithy platitude, you know, something to the tune of, you know, you just got to have faith. You know, tough times don't last, tough people do kind of thing. Which, the reason I bring that up is because I don't know how many times as a pastor I've heard somebody tell the story of, you know, the way that they walked away from the church or the way they walked away from faith or the way they walked, walked away from God altogether. And so often it has to do with the way that their doubt was handled. You know, they were raised in a church or some kind of, you know, religious community. And when they started having questions and they started voicing those questions, they were either punished outright for it or they were given some kind of useless bumper sticker statement that kind of just swept their, their doubt and their questions under the rug and kind of communicated, hey, just don't think about it. You know, just, just turn your brain off and have faith, which has caused so many people to walk away from Christianity. What you're seeing here in Jesus is nothing like that. Jesus doesn't punish John. He doesn't offer him a platitude. In fact, what he does here as he challenges John, he basically gives him a, um, you could call it a homework assignment that's meant to really unearth some of the unspoken assumptions that John the Baptist had about Jesus as the Messiah. And we're going to get to what those are in just a moment here, but before I move on, let me just pull one implication uh, of what we're seeing here for us as a church. Uh, if we are, as the Word of God calls us, the body of Christ, what that means ultimately is that we are called to be like Jesus. I think that is the most obvious mission of the church, be like Jesus. And so based on that, our goal as God's people should be to handle doubt the way that Jesus handles it here. And so and I've seen a lot of new faces around here specifically since the new year, which is common for churches. I just want to say, and I want you to hear it from me, if you're, you know, you've been around here for a little while and you're trying to figure out maybe who I am or who we are or what we're about, I just want you to know that our aim as a community of Jesus followers is to treat people who are struggling in their faith and struggling with doubt and asking questions. We want to handle that exactly the way that Jesus does here. We want to treat those people with, with grace and with compassion and with understanding because we know, according to passages like this, that anybody, even somebody as great as John the Baptist, can have moments in their life when they struggle greatly with their faith. So the first thing that, that we're seeing here from John is that absolutely anybody can, can struggle with doubt, with questions, with, with a lack of certainty about things that maybe they used to feel certain about. But before we move on from that and look at Jesus' answer here, 
I want to look at the specific way that John phrased his question. Because John's question itself also tells us something that we need to understand about ourselves. Verse 3, the specific question John asked, he says, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? You'll hear me do this often, but let me point out first what John does not say, so you can kind of see where I'm going with this. John does not say, are you the one, or should we stop looking? He doesn't say that. He says, are you the one, or should we keep looking elsewhere? The implication there is John knew that if Jesus was not the Messiah, if Jesus was not who he thought Jesus was, and he walked away from Jesus, he was going to have to keep looking, because we're all going to be looking for something. Now, the reason I, I want to point this out is because we live in what, you know, sociologists have referred to as, as really the first secular society. I'm talking about the modern West now. We live in what is considered really the first secular society in history. And secularism, if you're not familiar, it's a belief system that basically asserts that everything that exists is here purely by natural causes, and there's nothing after this, meaning there is no, supernaturally, uh, there, there is no supernatural reality whatsoever. So the universe either always existed or it somehow created itself, that humanity evolved through purely natural processes, and when we die, there's absolutely nothing after this. That's secularism. One of the things that's really interesting about secularism is it's created a generation of people who believe something that no other generation in human history has ever believed before. Secularism has produced a generation of people who believe that they have no beliefs. No one's ever thought that way before, look around you kind of thing. Right? People raised in a secular society increasingly have this mindset that, yeah, religious people might believe things. They might have their faith in something. They might put their hope in something, but not me. I don't have beliefs. I don't have faith in anything. I don't have hope in anything. That's why, for instance, I don't know if you like doing this, but if you ever watch a debate between a leading atheist thinker and, say, a Christian apologist, if it's like you know, Dawkins or Sam Harris versus like a William Lane Craig, eventually what you'll probably hear in those debates is the atheist will talk as though their opponent has faith and has belief and all that kind of stuff, but they'll say that they themselves have none. I I walked through all this to simply make the point, John the Baptist was smart enough to know that that's actually not an option. Uh, He was looking to Jesus, obviously, as the Messiah, meaning he put his hope in Jesus, he put his faith in Jesus, and so he knew if Jesus was not who he hoped Jesus was, it wasn't like he just wouldn't have faith in anything anymore. He would just have to locate his faith in something else. That's what his question implies. And really, that's the only option that we have. So if you were here last week, I, I pulled a quote from the book's called A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester, and I was quoting a passage. I basically quoted one half of it to you. Now I'm going to quote the other half. Tim Chester kind of speaking along these lines. He said, everyone's trying to find salvation. They might not ask, what must I do to be saved? But everyone has some sense of what it is that would make them satisfied, fulfilled, and accepted. And then he gives some common examples of of, uh, versions of salvation in our culture. He says success in business, the admiration of men, a beautiful home, a liberated homeland, a secure future, the worship of women, a great body, wealth and prosperity, the acceptance of friends, a happy family, or a dream vacation. And he goes on and he makes the point that none of those, pardon me, none of those versions of salvation work for for two reasons, two reasons that he says. Number one, they don't deliver, even if we get our hands on them. 
they'll only ever leave us wanting more. But number two, they don't forgive us when and not if we fail to meet their standard. And, and so I say this to say, the question is not, do you have faith? The question is, what are you locating your faith in? That's why John the Baptist doesn't say, are you the one we're looking for or should we stop looking? He says, are you the one or should we look somewhere else? Because John knew that the human heart has no option except to look to something or someone to save us. And some of the most profound kind of self-knowledge that you and I will possess in this life is the knowledge of the particular things that we look to other than Jesus. So just to recap here before we move forward and look at Jesus' response, in summary, John the Baptist tells us two things about ourselves in his little crisis of faith in the jail cell. First off, he tells us that absolutely anybody can struggle greatly with doubt but secondly, and maybe even more importantly, John shows us that if we allow our doubt to run from Jesus, we're never going to stop running because we're never going to find what we're looking for. <clears throat> Having established that, let's turn now to how Jesus responds to him. <clears throat> Verses 4 through 6. It says, Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind see... The lame walk, those with skin diseases are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Verse 6, and if anyone is not offended because of me, he is blessed. Now, what I want to do in the time we have left here is just pull two things out of Jesus' words here, because I think Jesus is, is primarily communicating two things about himself that anybody who wants to come to him and be transformed by him has to understand. And I'll give them to you. I'll give you these two ideas in the front end. First off, Jesus is saying that anybody who comes to him with any desire to follow him will eventually be offended by him. That's a non-negotiable. And secondly, Jesus is saying if you and I can find out how to get through that offense instead of allowing it to be an off-ramp to our faith. If we can figure out how to get through that offense, there is a blessing on the other side of it that would never otherwise be possible in our lives. So let me walk through both of these ideas. First and foremost, when Jesus says here, verse 6 is such a strange statement, especially for it to be, you know, the concluding thing that he, he gives back to John. For Jesus to say that the one who is blessed, or other versions say, blessed is the one who's not offended by him, what that means first and foremost is Jesus is offensive. Jesus is going to offend you. So you think about it this way. If you, let's say you're starting a new job tomorrow and you're orienting with your boss and your boss tells you during orientation, hey, one thing you got to know if you work for me, you just can't be offended easily. That's your boss's way of saying that your boss is going to do and say things that are terribly offensive. Uh, another kind of way that this plays out, which I can't stand, you know, if somebody reaches out to you and says, hey, i got to talk to you about something, which automatically my blood pressure's up when I hear that. And then they start the talk with, no offense, but you know you're getting ready to hear something incredibly offensive. There's only one reason somebody tells you not to take offense at something. It's because they're getting ready to offend you. My point is, for Jesus to say here, blessed is the person who figures out how to not be offended by me means people are going to be offended by Jesus, which is exactly what's going on in John the Baptist's life here. 
And when we understand what exactly was so offensive to John, I think this passage begins to really become relevant to us in our day-to-day lives. So what was it about Jesus that so offended John? So I don't know if this stood out to you, but the, the question that John asked Jesus Commentators have pointed out how how interesting this is, that John, when he sends a message to Jesus, he doesn't say, are you the Messiah? He doesn't say, are you the Savior of the world? He He says, are you the one? It's a very interesting way to phrase his question, because if you had been reading Matthew's gospel account through in one shot, and you got up to chapter 11 here, you would know John the Baptist already called Jesus the one. He told everybody that would listen that Jesus was the one. It's back in Matthew chapter 3. When people are flocking to John to get baptized in the Jordan, John says, I'm baptizing you with water. To all these crowds assembled that day, he says, I'm baptizing you with water, but the one coming after me, and then pay real careful attention because here's how John described the Messiah. This is how he understood the Messiah. He said, I'm baptizing you with water, but the one coming after me, that's Jesus, he said, he's more powerful than I am. And when you understand what John was saying there, I think everything about what was going on in this moment in his life suddenly becomes clear. John, like pretty much everybody else, really all of God's people in John's day, had this unspoken assumption that the Messiah, whoever the Messiah was, when the Messiah appeared, the one who's going to fix everything and liberate God's people and all that stuff, the Messiah would be a powerful Messiah. Because you look at, and I can sympathize with John, it's not, I don't think any of us would have known any better than him or even the disciples, because when you look at the prophecies they had in the Old Testament, you know, the, the prophecy was that this Messiah is going to come, he's going to be a liberator and a protector and a deliverer and a rescuer, and all of that implies some muscle mass, all of that implies some strength. So you look at some of the, the, the people that have served as liberators and deliverers in the Old Testament, first person that comes to my mind is King David. You know, King David dropped a giant with a sling and a stone when he was still a shepherd boy. He wasn't even a trained soldier yet. He knew how to defeat the enemies of God's people. He was a great warrior king. He surrounded himself with these legendary figures called his mighty men. What John assumed, and not unreasonably so, is that when the Messiah appeared, that's exactly what he would be like. He would be this picture of strength that sort of commanded respect everywhere he went. The problem with that is when you read the gospel accounts, Jesus is, is about as far from that as you can be. And so John, it's, I don't think it's difficult to kind of psychoanalyze John at this point in his life. He's where any of us would have been if we were in John's position. John's thinking, okay, I'm the Messiah's herald. I'm the forerunner. I've dedicated my life to preparing the way for the Messiah, and yet here I am. I'm in prison, and it's looking like I'm not going to live to see the outside of it. So so in his mind, he's thinking, so if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's this strong savior, if he's this liberator and he's this deliverer, then why doesn't it feel like I'm on the winning side? Now, I've said all this to say, and, and, and this is important in understanding John's crisis here. The reason John was dealing with the doubt that he was dealing in that jail set is not just because he was suffering. John knew how to suffer. He lived most of his life out in the wilderness. He ate locusts and honey. He didn't need a comfortable life to get by. John knew how to suffer. He knew how to make sacrifices. That's not what led to his crisis of doubt. What's leading to this crisis in his life is John the Baptist, for the first time in his life, is coming to terms with the reality that Jesus is not the Messiah that he thought Jesus was going to be. And maybe you hear that and say, hey, that's an interesting history lesson. What does that have to do with me? The answer is absolutely everything. Because every single one of us 
is eventually going to have to wrestle with what John the Baptist is, is wrestling with here. You've heard me quote this book a number of times to you. This is from, from Sacred Fire. <clears throat> the author, Ronald Rollheiser, puts it this way. And actually, I said this to the 9 a.m., but I want to repeat this here. Before I read this quote, I am absolutely confident that there's a number of people that are going through exactly what I'm getting ready to describe. And so I would ask you, as you listen to these words, I highlighted them as soon as I read them some years ago. I knew I was going to work them into a sermon somehow. I just ask you, as I read this quote, this description of discipleship, to ask yourself if this isn't exactly where God has you this morning. He writes, in our journey of discipleship, we will any number of times have to undergo a certain dynamic of crucifixion and resurrection in our faith. Our vision of faith and hope will be crucified and humiliated. God, Christ, and the church as we understand them will die in our experience. In the discouragement that ensues, we will be tempted to walk away from our faith, our church, our hope, our Christ, and our God towards some place of consolation. That is exactly what is going on in John's life here. And if Ronald Rollheiser is correct, it will eventually happen to all of us because every single one of us has preconceived notions and assumptions that we project onto Jesus about the Messiah that we think he should be and the lives that we're supposed to have as we follow him. And the whole purpose of this account in Matthew's gospel, and this is exactly what Rollheiser is one of the checkpoints in the journey of faith in your relationship with God is when you wake up one morning and realize that a number of your and my assumptions were flat wrong. You read the Bible through Genesis to Revelation, and God has this uncanny way of getting us to that point. Just off the top of of your head, you you think about Abraham. Abraham had to wait 25 years to meet a child that he was then told he needed to give back to God. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery, wrongly accused the crimes he didn't commit, thrown into a jail cell where he was forgotten about for years, lost decades of his life to injustice. Moses never got to step foot in the promised land. King David, despite being the anointed king of Israel, had to live some eight years on the run, homeless, going from cave to cave, looking over his shoulder, waiting for King Saul to murder him. Elijah never got to see the the revival of his people, the movement of God that he he so desperately longed to see. Daniel needed to be thrown into a lion's den, Jonah into the belly of a fish, John the Baptist here into a jail cell. And my point is that Scripture is filled with men and women who were led by God into situations that confused them, that confounded them, and that ultimately offended them. And what Jesus is saying here to John the Baptist and to all who would come to him is that if we do come to him and we do follow him, he's going to offend us as well because he refuses to fit inside these tiny molds that we try to impose on him about the Messiah that we think he should be, and he will inevitably allow you and I to experience things that we simply do not understand. That is, a, that is a hard thing to talk about. That is a heavy thing to talk about. But in, but in a weird way, follow me here, I actually find that comforting. Because as Evelyn Underhill once famously said, I wish I could steal credit for this quote, but this one goes to Evelyn Underhill. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. 
And what Jesus is saying here in verse 6 is because he is big enough to be worshipped, he is big enough, he is sovereign enough, he is wise enough to allow things into our lives to be a part of our stories that we might never fully understand on this side. That's what we're signing up for. What Jesus goes on to say, and this is the promise in this passage, is that if you and I can get through that offense, and let's be clear here, a lot of people don't. There are so many people. You know people like this. You love people like this. And maybe up until this morning, this has been a part of your story, there's so many people that have the story, yeah, I used to read the Bible. I used to pray. I used to go to church. I used to believe in God. But then he allowed me to experience X, and I just couldn't do it anymore. Then and what they're basically saying is exactly what Jesus says here. They were offended, and that became the off-ramp of their faith. What Jesus is promising here is that if you and I can get through that offense, if we can push through to the other side of that, then there is a blessing on the other side of it that, that cannot enter our lives any other way. And when you look at, I just did a quick word study. If you look at this word that Jesus uses here for blessing, if you look at the way that it's used in the New Testament, Jesus is not just saying you'll be happy. It is something so much bigger and greater than that. Jesus is talking about this deep level of spiritual joy and fulfillment and human flourishing. It's something like the Old Testament concept of shalom. Jesus says that's available to you and I, but only if we figure out how to get through this offense without allowing it to be a dead end. The offense that inevitably comes when we find out Jesus and not I am the boss now. So the question is, how do you get through that offense? And the answer is... We just need to understand what John the Baptist in this particular moment in his life could not understand. <clears throat> We're almost done here. I just ask you to lean in. But when I was putting this teaching together, I can honestly say I think this passage of Scripture is one of the most difficult ones I've had to teach in recent memory just because I could not figure out why Jesus responded the way that he did here. And on the surface, it is incredibly confusing. What you have here, Matthew tells us that John the Baptist in prison... Follow this. In prison, John hears everything that Jesus was doing. So he reaches out to Jesus. And Jesus, in his response, tells John everything that he was doing. And I kept reading that and trying to make sense of that. And I'm thinking, why would Jesus respond that way? Why not answer the question directly? How would that have even encouraged John or even been an answer to his question? But commentators point out that when Jesus... When Jesus recaps his ministry to John, he, he's not just firing off a random list of miracles. What he's actually doing here is he's quoting, he's, he's actually deliberately pulling quotes from the book of Isaiah about what would happen when the Messiah arrived. He's, he's pulling direct quotes, I'm going to read this to you, from, from Isaiah chapter 35. But what's fascinating is all of these things that Jesus references the context of them is the wrath and the retribution and the judgment of God. So let me read this to you because these verses are what would have immediately come to, to mind for John the Baptist when he heard Jesus' reply. In Isaiah 35, verse 3, it says, Strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees. Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Listen to this. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Right after this is the part that Jesus quotes. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Point is, Jesus was bringing John back to those prophecies about what would happen when the Messiah arrived. But the reason that John was so stuck in that jail cell is because he only saw half of those prophecies coming true. 
He saw the eyes of the blind being opened and the ears of the deaf being unstopped. He saw the blessings of God, but he was waiting for for the judgment. John wanted to see vengeance. John wanted to see justice. He wanted to see retribution. But what he couldn't understand when he looked at Jesus is that the judgment of God was at hand. What he didn't understand is that Jesus was not here to dole it out. He was here to receive it in our place. What John the Baptist could not understand in that jail, so this would have changed his life if he, if he could know then what we know now, is that when the Messiah arrived, he didn't come down here the first time to destroy his enemies. He came down here to be destroyed for his enemies so that God could put an end to evil without also putting an end to us. And I don't know of another way to get through this, this point in life that John was right here when you just can't understand why God is dealing with you the way that he's dealing with you. I don't know of any other way to get through those times in life except to go back and remind yourself one more time of everything that Jesus Christ went through for you. So let me call the worship team back up, and I just want to leave you with one final thought today. Years after this story, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, There's another account that is eerily similar to what we read about today in Matthew's gospel account. It's involving Paul the Apostle, and just like John the Baptist, he had dedicated his life to laying out the red carpet for Jesus and helping people understand who he was. And just like John the Baptist, he suffered greatly in his service to Jesus. Paul had been publicly humiliated. He'd been beaten. He'd been tortured. He'd been unjustly thrown in prison, and he had no idea whether or not he was going to live to see outside of the walls of his cell. It's almost exactly the same situation as John the Baptist, and yet you can read the story in Acts 16. Instead of doubting, Paul the apostle is singing hymns. He cannot contain his joy. And the question is, why? Is that just because he had a better temperament than John? Was he just a stronger person than John? It's not the answer at all. There's one difference. If you get nothing else from this teaching, I hope you just hold on to this today. There is one difference that separates Paul the Apostle and John the Baptist. It's that Paul the, Paul the Apostle lived on the other side of the cross. Paul the Apostle was able to go back to Calvary, and he knew that his Savior had already in an infinite way experienced everything that he himself was going through. He knew that Jesus Christ was humiliated. Jesus Christ was beaten and blindfolded and mocked and ridiculed and spit on and hung on a cross for the sins of the world where he literally was forsaken by God. John felt forsaken in that jail cell. You and I, maybe we've experienced things in this life where we felt forsaken. Jesus did not feel forsaken. He was forsaken. And he went through all of that so that you and I could finally find the love and the acceptance and the significance and the security that our hearts so long for by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. And when Paul understood, when Paul understood everything that Jesus went through for him, and when you and I understand everything that Jesus Christ has gone through for us, it gives us the ability to go through anything for him. And even if even if, I know, and I know I'm so confident this is right where somebody is today, I'll leave you with this. Even if Jesus is leading you through something that you just don't understand, even if you can't figure out why Jesus is allowing your story to be what it is, if, even if you can't understand why things in your marriage went the way that they went, or why things with your physical health are the way that they are, or why the life that God's laid out for you is the life that God's laid out for you. Even if you can't understand any of that, you'll be able to break through the offense 
and find blessing on the other side because you'll know that the one who went through everything that Jesus went through for you is the one who can be trusted. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I'm sure, I'm sure on the other side of this teaching, there are people that feel just like John the Baptist did in that jail cell. They're struggling, they're doubting, they're questioning, they're wondering. And what we need more than anything else, Jesus, is, to, is just what you told John the Baptist. We need to break through the offense and find the blessing on the other side that can only come from trusting you. And so we need to see with a fresh set of eyes all that you went through for us. Would you please make it more than an intellectual thing, more than something we just know with our minds. Please help us to know what it is that you so loved us that you gave your son in our place to bear our sin, our shame, our punishment, our guilt so that we could have the love and the acceptance and the home that we've always been looking for in you. Would you make it real to us this morning so that we can walk through whatever it is you're calling us to walk through on this side with all the grace of somebody that knows that Jesus has gone ahead of us and he carries us every step of the way. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen.